1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting from verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, uh, the, the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Uh, well, if you've not met a man in our church called uh, Reyes Garcia, he is part of our church family. He's also an assistant professor of structural engineering at Warwick. And uh, part of Reyes's research includes assessing the um, structural integrity of buildings. I don't know if I'm a bit loud to you guys. I feel a bit loud to me. Super, thank you so much. Um, and I was speaking to Reyes uh, this week about cracks that reveal a weakness. Uh, here's a photo of what I am told is the beam column joint at the corner of a building that uh, Reyes was testing. And if you um, have a, a look at this building, you'll see, or this column, you'll see that there's um, a number of cracks with some numbers 
written on them. Uh, and that's because uh, Reyes and his team uh, were permitted to induce a small earthquake on this building. And it revealed all of these small weaknesses. Then they induced a major earthquake, and this happened. And you see how significant those weaknesses are. Those tiny cracks that you might not have noticed warned that the whole structure would collapse under pressure. In an infinitely greater way, that's how important the resurrection is for Christians. If you don't get the resurrection right, whatever else you build in the name of Christianity will come crashing down on your heads. And when Matthew took us through the first 11 verses of this chapter, Paul explained the certainty of the resurrection. Christians are not interested in fantasy and wish fulfillment. The centrality of of the resurrection here in the first 11 verses is, is rooted on the fact that it was a real event that took place in history and you can be really sure that it really happened. But there is a difference between saying that and truly understanding what it means in every area of your life. And that's what Paul focuses on in this section. You see, there are some people in the church in Corinth who said there was no resurrection of the dead, by which they mean in the future there would be no bodily resurrection of people. And Paul doesn't actually tell us exactly why they were teaching that or what they were teaching instead. If you lived in Paul's day, about 2,000 years ago, the kind of common word on the street, the worldview that a regular Corinthian would have, not in the church, would be that your body is a kind of tomb. And in one sense, the thing to look forward to when you die is that you kind of get rid of the body and your soul could then be free for its eternal life. And maybe that kind of thinking had, had crept into the church and they were trying to shape Christianity around it. We just don't really know. But whatever it was that they were teaching, they were definitely teaching that there wasn't a future resurrection to look forward to. And that's a really big problem. That's a building collapse problem. So what Paul does is he responds to it in three different ways. I need you to see the kind of overarching structure and then we can dig into some details. First thing he does is he steps into that worldview and shows you what it really means if you live by it. He does that shaking the building that Reyes does, sometimes very literally. What Paul does in verses 12 to 19 is he shows us that the resurrection is a structural line of integrity in Christianity. So if you get that wrong, your whole fake religion is going to come crashing down around you. Then the second thing he does, verses 20 to 28, is he steps back from being in that fake worldview. He steps back into the real world and he explains how Jesus' resurrection is the cornerstone for the future. It's the cornerstone for your future if you're a Christian. That's verses 20 to 23. And it's a cornerstone for the future of all things. That's verses 24 onwards. And then the third way he engages with this issue verses 29 to the end, 
is he shows the Corinthians that, look, there's all this good thinking that you need to understand, but you also just need to reflect on the fact that you live your life expecting that there's a resurrection. The Corinthians assume that. Paul assumed that. And we assume that. And whatever nonsense and false teaching is going on in Corinth, the ordinary, everyday lives of the people in this church assumed that there would be a bodily resurrection. Now, before you think, well, that's all very interesting, but that has absolutely nothing to do with us whatsoever today. Um, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder if any of you remember the name Dr. John Shepherd. Uh, his name kind of hit the news in 2019 when he was appointed the director of, Anglican, of the Anglican Centre in Rome. So he was like the Anglican's ambassador to Roman Catholicism. It's quite a big job. When his appointment was made, the news headline that did the rounds was not that so much as what he said when he was a dean of a church in Australia back in 2008. This is what he said. I watched his talk and wrote it down. This is him, not me. It is important for Christians to be set free from the idea that the resurrection was an extraordinary physical event which restored to life Jesus' original earthly body. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus need not require us to believe in the physical resuscitation of Jesus' earthly body. People who find that concept difficult are by no means excluded from the Christian faith and the celebration of Easter. It's 2008. From a dean in the Anglican Church. You see, ever since the so-called Enlightenment, much of the, quotes church, have thought the best way to share the good news of Jesus with an increasingly scientific world <clears throat> is to strip out all the miraculous bits that make Christianity a hard thing to understand. Because if you can't explain something as miraculous, and there is nothing more miraculous than the resurrection, then maybe it would be best just to not talk about those kinds of things and we can talk about other things. But Paul explained to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago that if you do that, what you're left with isn't Christianity at all. If you remove the resurrection from the Bible, you destroy Christianity as a whole. And that is what we're going to unpack this evening. So the first thing I want us to see is that without a resurrection of the dead, Christianity is dead and buried. Without a resurrection of the dead, Christianity is dead and buried. Paul's first step in responding to all this nonsense is he gets into that worldview and says, so what does this actually look like? Um, to Kill a Mockingbird, still one of my favorite books, Atticus Finch, you can't understand someone until you climb into their skin and walk around for a bit, okay? That's what Paul does. He steps into this worldview and says, so, okay, so you say there's no bodily resurrection in the world. Well, let's try that worldview on for size. Here are six implications that flow from that idea. If there's no resurrection, number one, Christ hasn't been raised. Verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. Because if God lacks the power to raise the dead, 
or if it's not his plan to bodily raise people from the dead, then that applies to Jesus just as it applies to anybody else. Because yes, Jesus is fully divine, but Jesus is also fully human. So no resurrection means Jesus is still dead, and that's the end of Christianity right there. Which means, number two, preaching's useless. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 15. This uh, section is a summary of the whole of the gospel. I want to remind you of the gospel. I preached to you. Verse 2. This is the gospel that I preached to you. Here's the message. What's the preaching? What's verses 3 to 8 all about? One thing. The bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's the thing, verse 11, that we preached. And this is what you believed. Which means if you deny the resurrection, there is no Christian message to preach. So verse 14, preaching is useless. And it's worse than that. It's worse than that because in the way that Paul and other people have been preaching this message, what they've been saying to people is, God has said that he has found a a solution, he has planned a solution for your salvation through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, If there's no resurrection, not only is their preaching useless, but thirdly, Christians have lied about God. Verse 15. More than that, we're then found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he doesn't raise him if, in fact, the dead aren't raised. For if the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. Now, you and I might think that's a bad thing to do. (laughs) You don't really want to set yourself out as telling somebody that this is what God says if he doesn't say it. This man was a Jew. He'd been born and raised in one of the strictest possible understandings of what it means to be a Jew. And right in the center of that was his understanding that to be a false prophet was to risk death. There's no way that Paul would hold himself out to say something this bad because they have lied about God. And not only is that bad news for him, it's bad news for all people because Christians are looking at and relying upon a useless faith. Why? Because they are still dead in their sins. Verse 17. If Christ is not being raised, your faith is futile, for you are still in your sins. If you read through the Bible, God is crystal clear that the wages of sin is death. My wages, your wages. So the only way any of us can avoid the judgment we deserve is if somebody else pays the penalty for our sin in our place. And if Jesus is still dead, he can't be that person. If you've been in church for a while, you may have heard of uh, preachers, speakers talk of the resurrection as God's confirmation, God's guarantee, God's receipt that what Jesus has done is sufficient and you can believe it completely because look, he's risen and he couldn't possibly be risen if what he'd done isn't sufficient because he'd still be in the grave either because his life was full of sin or his offering wasn't sufficient. But if there's no resurrection, the sacrifice wasn't enough and every single one of us still got our sin problem to look at. And not just us here in the present, if we can't be saved, verse 18, neither can those who've already died. 
and we're trusting in Jesus. And all of that means, verse 19, Christians should be pitied. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people must be pitied. If this were true, that's the important caveat, we've listened to a lie, believed in a lie, suffered persecution for the sake of a lie, hoped and trusted for our salvation in a lie, denied ourselves pleasure in this life for a lie, and sought to convince others of a lie. If the resurrection is not true, you should go home. Don't try and pick up the pieces of Christianity and hold on to some form of moral something as though it were of value. Everything stands or falls by the resurrection. This is, if you play board games of any kind of description, this is the point at which Christians go all in. You leave nothing behind. Everything turns on this. So before I move on, can I speak to those of you who are just beginning to think about Christianity? And perhaps you've not really yet come to the point of trusting Jesus for your sins. There is more to Christianity than the resurrection. The Bible says other things. Okay? It tells us all sorts of things about all sorts of life. There is more to Christianity than the resurrection. But if you take the resurrection out of Christianity, what you're left with is not Christianity at all. So, if you are new to Christianity, the resurrection is perhaps the best place you can start. Because if Christianity is true anywhere... It has to be true here. So, could I encourage you to ask all the important questions you can about the resurrection? Did Jesus really die? If he didn't, he wasn't ever going to be raised because he never died. Was the tomb really empty or did they just fake it? And if the tomb was empty, what possible explanation could there be for all of the things that take place in the historically reliable sources that you can read in the New Testament? Now, if all of that is making you think, I have not asked those questions before. One of the books that we regularly give out as a church is a very short book. It is only uh, 72 pages long called Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb. And there's a pile of them on the table at the end. If you've not read this before and you're asking those questions, we've got one more week in chapter 15 next week. Take one for free and read it before next week. And here's my challenge. If you read it and you're not yet a Christian, I would love for you to tell me what's wrong. Read through this book. It's a challenge, a genuine challenge. If we've placed everything on the truth of the resurrection, I'd love for you to read through this book and think, what, how could you otherwise explain what's taken place? Now, thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us in that terrifying, hypothetical world of the non-resurrection. Verse 20 begins, But Christ has 
indeed been raised from the dead. I love the way that James read that section. Aren't you so thankful for all the, the but gods and the but Christ as you go through in the narrative of all the different books of the Bible? You've got this record of the mess that we have made of the world and then a but God or a but Christ. And verses 20 to 28, Paul brings us back to reality and he says really positively, because of Jesus' resurrection, we know how history will end. That's the second point. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we know how history will end. One of the many wonderful things about the resurrection is not only that it is historically true in the past, it's that it shows us what will happen in the future. Paul describes Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, Unless you've kind of got a bit of a fruit or veg patch in your garden or an allotment, that probably doesn't make you very excited. But in Paul's day, when lots more people would have depended hand-to-mouth on the food that they could grow, the first fruits were a big deal. After all of that sowing and watering and nurturing, you finally got the very beginnings of the first crop. And that first fruit... Was a, it was a guarantee in one sense. It was a pledge. It was a foretaste of the full harvest that is going to come. Which meant there was this wonderful practice that God had instilled in his people that when you came to the first fruits and you finally got those, those first little tidbits of whatever it was that you were growing, you didn't eat them yourself. You gave them to God. Because there was this wonderful sense of realizing that God is now providing... We give him the first, of, the best of all that is to come at the beginning, knowing that the full harvest is yet to come. And that is what Paul is saying is how we're to understand Jesus' resurrection. He's the first person to be raised from the dead to everlasting life, not the very first person to be raised from the dead. There are other people in the Bible who were raised from the dead, but then they died again. Jesus is the first person to be raised from the dead to everlasting life. And everything that Paul goes on to say is rooted in the fact that what's happened to Christ then is going to happen to us in the future. So in many ways, verses 21 to 23 are the heartbeat of this whole section. They explain how Jesus' resurrection then is going to apply to us. Because we're so connected to, we're so united to him who is our covenant head that what he did and does applies to us. Now that can be a bit of a hard thing for us to get our heads around, not least because we don't talk often about having covenant heads or federal heads. So what Paul does is he shows us the contrast. Every single one of us is born as a descendant of Adam. So he is every single man and woman and boy and girls covenant head by nature. And not only do we inherit our DNA from him and Eve, ever since Genesis 3, we inherit the sinful nature from him. And that nature leads to death, which is where every single one of us and all of our friends and family and neighbors and every single person born and left to ourselves is. And we can't do a single thing about it on our own. But God can. God can rescue you from the kingdom of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of the Son, 
he loves. He can unite you to Christ. In verse 23, he uses the language of belonging to him. He can make you so connected to Jesus, just as you were to Adam and you suffered what he suffered, that you receive and are blessed by everything that comes from being in Christ. So instead of being in Adam and dying, you can be in Christ and live. Which is the most amazing news that you're ever going to hear, but it's also not something you experience right now. And for so many of us, that creates a rub that we can find hard to explain. It's now 2,000 or so years since Paul wrote this letter. When he tied our eternal future to what happened to Jesus. But you think of all of the billions of Christians who have died since then. What's God doing in the gap is my question. Has he just turned his back on his people for all of that period and will do until Jesus returns? Verse 23 onwards, Paul explains God's reason for what appears to us to be a delay. It's not that God's walked away and turned his back on us. He is actively bringing all his enemies under his authority and rule. That's verse 24. In this, in this final period between Jesus' resurrection and his return, God is, present tense, exercising his judgment over all dominion and power and authority that are against him to prepare for the great day of judgment. He's patiently working out his justice in the world. He is overruling all of the evil and the wickedness and the suffering that we are seeing unfold on our news feeds. So that when his son returns, every eye will behold unimpeachable justice. And we will see all his enemies put under his feet. I don't know how much of a mess your personal life may be. But as you look out in the, the mess of all of the world, that's the day that we're longing for. And Paul says that you can be confident of that because of the resurrection. Just as, in terms of the agriculture that Paul's readers would have known, just as the full harvest follows the first fruits, so the perfect judgment of God is going to follow the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that day comes, verse 28, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. I just need to pause here for a moment because there's a lot of freight going around in this kind of a subject, this doesn't mean that Jesus is different in nature to God. Both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equally and eternally divine. Neither does it mean that Jesus is different in value to the Father under whom he submits himself. Paul is using exactly the same language here that he uses to describe children, wives, and church members submitting to parents, husbands, and church leaders. Not because there's any difference in value in any of those relationships, 
but because we are reflecting Jesus' joyful and willing submission to the Father when all of his work as the second Adam is finished. And when that day comes, that great work will result in God being all in all. That's a hard idiom to understand, um, especially in our culture. It probably sounds a little pantheistic, you know, kind of God's just involved in everything. I think the way we're to understand it is that God's reign and rule will so cover everything in the new creation, there will not be a corner or a shadow or an inch in rebellion to him. Everything will be under his rule. I was challenged this week as I was preparing all of this to see how critical Jesus' resurrection is for the world. If you ever hear a preacher say that, you're pretty sure what they're going to say is the resurrection is the way that we can know that our sins have been forgiven and the world needs to know that. And that's true. Absolutely, completely true. (laughs) That's the gospel. But it's not actually Paul's primary point here. What Paul does here is he traces from Jesus' resurrection 2,000 years ago to the end of history, whenever it comes, when Jesus returns, which might be before I finish preaching. And it might not be for another 2,000 years. One writer I read this week, he described Paul as giving us an in-flight picture of what Jesus is doing in the world. If you've been on a plane, you have no doubt sat uh, with that tiny screen in front of you that you're itching to watch 17 hours of films on because it's only this big. Um, and, and there's a button you can press to see how far you're going. And if you're anything like me, you like, keep hitting refresh thinking that's going to help you get there any faster. But the clearest thing you can tell is you've left your departure. You haven't yet landed, but you're not going anywhere. You're going to a particular destination and you're going to arrive. That's what Paul tells us about the whole of human history, and it's rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are in the middle of the flight, and human history is not just going anywhere. You can look at all of the mess and the carnage and the inhumane suffering in this world that drives you to tears during the course of this week and be tempted to think this world has gone and run amok And God is nowhere to be seen. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The plane of human life is still on the very flight plan God has chosen. And when Jesus returns, he will land the plane of history for good. All his enemies will be put under his feet. That day has not yet come, but it is not in doubt. Justice will come. Which means for every single one of us, the most important question is whether we are ready for Jesus' promises that all who belong to him and are in Christ will be made alive. Well, that includes you. Are you ready for his return? Not because your life is good enough, but because you're united to Jesus. 
Now, all of that is a glorious vision of the future, and it is an amazing outworking of the resurrection, but at times it can feel a bit overwhelming too, can't it? It's also big and cosmic and universal, and at least for little Jim's mind, that's all a little bit too much. So what Paul does is he earths his final argument. You've got these people saying in Corinth, there is no future resurrection of the body. And Paul's already shown us that denying the resurrection destroys Christianity. And he's shown us that the resurrection gives us confidence in how history will end. And his final argument is a very personal one. He says, thirdly and finally, our lives assume and long for eternity. Church in Corinth, verse 29, they baptized the dead. And we have no idea what that means. <laughs> Over the course of church history, I think I'm right in saying there are between 30 and 40 different interpretations of what was going on. And you can read any of them and be more persuaded by whichever one you think is more convincing. The honest answer is not only that we don't know, but we don't need to know. And why do I say that? Paul doesn't endorse what they're doing here. He doesn't tell all future Christians, including us, to do the same thing that the Corinthians were doing in baptizing the dead. That's not his point. His point is, you're doing this, why? Why would you bother doing anything for those who've already died? It can only be because you're convinced, whatever you may say, that there's a bodily resurrection for the dead. And Paul knew something of that, that deep-seated conviction for himself, too. For him, it sustained him through the hardship and the suffering of his life. Explain why he was willing to literally endanger his life for others. Now, verse 32, he talks about facing, uh, fighting wild beasts in Ephesus, I don't think that's a description of actual wild beasts. Of course, in his day, Christians were often thrown into an arena to be killed by wild beasts. But remember, Paul's a Roman citizen. So he should never have been subjected to that kind of terror, which he probably, statistically, wouldn't have survived either. I think what he's doing is picking up on some Old Testament language to use it as a metaphor for suffering and persecution from all of the people in Ephesus who are opposed to the gospel. And he's looking back on all of that, saying, what on earth would possess you to suffer all of that if there wasn't any truth in an eternal life to come? Why would you endure all of that victimization and persecution and suffering and opposition and not just do what the ancient proverb says? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But if Jesus is risen... And if, by faith in him, men and women and boys and girls can be united to him and raised to eternal life themselves, then isn't that worth whatever suffering may come? That's what Paul's looking back on. All of his experience is showing us the centrality of the resurrection. It's the heartbeat of Christianity. It explains our hope for the future and it's what we long for in the present. Um, the more this passage worked to my heart this week, I've been convicted of two things. 
And the first is, and in one sense it seems to come out of the blue in verses 33 to 34. But what Paul says is, we need to see how important our friends are. It's a bit strange when you think about the enormity of the subject of the resurrection that Paul spent all of this time explaining. What he does is he goes back to verse 12. Verse 12, some of you are teaching. And he comes back to that influence in verses 33 and 34. And he says, with the same people in mind, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. You know, the devil has an unending playbook to hinder and harass you in your Christian life. And one of the ones that we might miss is his way to pull us from the gospel through the friendships that we keep. Your friends may well be professing Christians. They might even go to your CU or be attached sometimes to a church, maybe even this church. But if they are teaching things that are false and ungodly, it is better to end a friendship than drift into sin. The second thing that I have been convicted by is we need our lives to be gripped by eternity. Look at verses 30 to 32 afresh. Paul is so gripped by eternity that he was willing to put his whole life on the line in order that other people would hear about Jesus. Now, I'm a preacher and I get to preach to a largely Christian gathering at least once a week. Let me tell you what my Monday looks like. My Monday, by contrast to Paul, looks a bit more like one of those modern cars that has collision avoidance software built in. And I can see some awkward conversation coming my way and all the sensors in my body fire off and I swerve to avoid a conversation, an opportunity, a difficult subject. Because I've put such a high value on trying to preserve an image or a relationship or somebody else's high opinion that what I'm willing to risk is all too often nothing. sure he wasn't the first person to say it, but I will never forget Rico Tice saying that perhaps our greatest problem in evangelism is we think too much of how our friends will think of us today than we do of how God will think of them on the day of judgment. So I... <laughs> I am not standing before you as the guy who's got evangelism right and always engages in every opportunity. I'm Mr. Evasion guy. But I wonder whether some of us are too. And I wonder whether we need to hear the conviction 
that had so gripped Paul's heart that he would go and go again and go again even if those opportunities could result in his death in order to ensure that others would hear that Jesus is raised from the dead. And you can know it too. Rather than rushing into our closing hymn, I wonder if we could just have a moment of quiet. And each of us can pray before the Lord. And some will need to pray for greater confidence in what Jesus has secured. Some will need to come and ask that God would save you for the very first time. Others like me need to ask for God to turn off the aversion software that we would have the courage of Paul. Father in heaven, thank you that what James said at the very beginning of our service is true, that our confidence does not rest in our personality or our gifts or our ability. It is rooted, secure, and eternally safe in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Father, I pray that every single one of us would have a growing sense of security in that. Personally, for our own salvation, that you would keep pulling away those lies that the devil would have us believe that some part of our works is involved and threatening the fact that we would be saved. Father, would, would you show us that because Jesus has raised from the dead, our salvation is secure? But Father, would you also help us to see that until men and women and boys and girls trust in Jesus, their eternal future is not secure and would you so grip our hearts by the reality of eternity that we would joyfully give and give and give again that others would hear and respond to him we pray for your help in all of this none of us can do it in our own strength father we pray for your forgiveness for those times when we have swerved away from opportunities because we just thought they would be too tricky. Please, please, would you have centermost in our minds that there is a day coming when the God of all the world who does what is right will judge all people. And Father, we beg of you to graciously Save many such that in that judgment you would clothe them in the righteousness of Christ and they would be spared judgment and brought into your kingdom forever. Father, we pray that you would help us to be future people who live lives that are eager for others to know the Lord Jesus for themselves. And we pray for his name and his glory. Amen.